Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hello, everybody. Uh, Before we get started with today's podcast, I just want to give a shout out. Uh, We've been getting some really great reviews on iTunes, and I wanted to share them and say thank you for your reviews. Uh, Today's review is from S. Streeter Rena, and she says, for me, listening to this podcast has been enlightening. More often than not, I say to myself, yes, that's me, or I've been there to the things and topics that are presented. I've even had a few moments where the podcast has been able to put into words what I was unable to. To sum it up, if you work in a nonprofit or charitable organization, you need to listen to this podcast. S Street Arena, thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. That was great. Yeah, I mean, we are doing this podcast with Charity Village uh, to really make sure that we're elevating our sector and to know that it's resonating with you is so great. So if you are listening right now, please uh, pop into iTunes and leave a rating, a review, and we will share it with others. And of course, the more you rate and review and of course, listen, the more other people will be able to find the podcast and get help for their work. So take a second now and go ahead and do that. Today's episode, I'm so excited about, and I'm totally, I don't want to say fangirling about, but um, <laughs> I have been such a fan of Vule for so long. Um, as soon as I learned about his work, uh, it just resonated with me right away. And I'm so excited to have him on the podcast. Um, yeah, like I've been reading his blog like for such a long time. And it's just like that great mix of just like humor and honesty. And, uh, you know, just kind of like for me helps me uh, sort of identify another voice working in the sector um, who's, you know, taking the challenges with like a good dose of kind of like cynicism and lightheartedness, mm-hmm. but also like. Um, really actually practical and great insights. Yeah. And I love like, he's just calling our sector out on all the things we need to be called out on. And we talk about this um, in the podcast, which is, or in the interview, uh, it's out of a place of love, right? I feel like he, he he reminds me of my mom in the sense that, you know, <laughs> when you really need like that honest opinion, the yeah. only person for me, that, that person is my mom. If I need that, like, you know, angel or devil on my shoulder saying, um, you need to really think about that. I feel like that's Vu for our sector. And he's just really telling, sort of holding us to a a mirror and saying, listen, these are the things we got to change. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just like, it's calling out, um, you know, I would say some, some really difficult tension sometimes Mm -hmm. that, uh, that often, because we work in the charitable sector, we're beneficiary of donations. Like we want everybody to like trust and think that we're like, you know, angels doing, you know, amazing work, but you know, that kind of profile or idea about yourself, I think can like prevent you from, from being like really critical and truthful about, um, about the, the deficiencies and challenges and like, you know, like shortfalls. Um, and I think that he kind of cuts through some of the crap sometimes and, and calls them right out. So exactly. Super helpful. Exactly. 
again, so happy to have you on the podcast. I'm so happy that you, our listeners, are able to participate in these very important conversations. Here we go. Fu Lei is a writer, speaker, vegan, Pisces, and the executive director of Rainier Valley Corps, a nonprofit organization in Seattle that promotes social justice by developing leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Vu is known for his no BS approach, irreverence, sense of humor, and a love of unicorns. And Vu has been featured in dozens, if not hundreds, of his own blogs at nonprofitaf.com and, of course, numerous other blogs and publications. This is such a great interview. Thank you so much, Vu, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, now, if our audience doesn't know you and your work, they absolutely need to because I feel like you are one of the most prominent voices in our sector that's advocating for social justice change within uh, our work and our work environments. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about your uh, background in the sector and more specifically about your blog. Yeah, I, uh, I was pre-med. <laughs> I came over here when I was eight from Vietnam, and uh, my parents thought I should become a doctor. So I was pre-med for a little bit of time, and then I realized I didn't, I didn't want to be a doctor and got into social work. So I got a, a degree in psychology and then social work. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so have gone into the sector through a uh, program that was supported by AmeriCorps. And it was really focused on getting leaders of Vietnamese descent into the nonprofit sector. So that was, that was my start. Uh, the blog started because a funder of my organization at the time, mm-hmm. uh, the funder was called Social Venture Partners, and uh, they asked uh, me to write from the perspective of a grantee. And I thought, well, <laughs> I, I need to do this because it's a funder. And yeah. uh, I, <laughs> so I, I started writing. And wow. Then, yeah, I realized that I, I really enjoyed it. So it, that's how the, the blog continued. Excellent. And I mean, so there's one thing to write and to write about the work, but you're tackling some pretty heavy topics head on. Um, topics that we need to talk about as a sector. Um, what has been the most, um, I don't want to say controversial, but the one that, that's galvanized you the most in terms of this is something that we need to change. Oh, several things. I think I've been talking a lot about the just the dynamics between foundations and nonprofits. And I, I do think that we need to address it because these power imbalances and the philosophies around how we fund nonprofits has really have really been preventing us from reaching our potential. Mm-hmm. And so it's been important to to push that and to let funders know that no, it's not just an annoyance anymore. You're preventing us from doing our work by restricting funding or giving one year grants or basing your entire practices on this this lack of trust, this assumption that most nonprofits are out there going to to do terrible things with money. And so we need to put in safeguards to prevent them from doing that. I, I don't think that's a good philosophy. Mm-hmm. But that's something I've been pushing. The other thing is, I, I think the way we do fundraising in the sector in general with individual donors 
is also problematic. I, I think that it, 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 it's in, in many ways been perpetuating some of the injustice we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Things like the savior complex or poverty tourism and not getting people to analyze the systemic inequities that exist. For example, yes, we do appreciate our donors. They are amazing. They're a critical part of the work. But we also need to get people to understand why there is so much wealth disparities that would allow them to be major donors in the first place. Mm-hmm. And we really do not have these conversations. So I've been really pushing that. Amazing. I, and a little ironic that this the blog originally was funded by a funder. And now, I mean, that whole dynamic is really the backbone of, of some of the, the work that you're doing. Um, how I, I, I think for myself and for other listeners, you know, on the most part, we're sitting here nodding our heads or when I read your blog post, I'm like, yes, of course. Uh, but it's really difficult to, Turn that into action, especially because we are on that uh, other side of the power dynamic. How have you seen or or what would you suggest an organization, specifically small ones, because we are, we do specifically talk to small organizations. How can we start to bridge those conversations uh, with our donors and with our funders um, in a way that's productive and in getting them to think a little bit differently about their requirements. One thing, one thing I would say is for us all to really understand where our fears are coming from, right? Mm. Because I do think that we have been trained to be really fearful of things. If yes. we wrong, we could lose funding. If we give feedback to a funder, something they don't like to hear, they might cut off funding. We tell the donor that what they said might be racist mm-hmm. and they might cut off funding too. And then there's also the fact that it's, it's, we were not allowed to fail, you know, mm-hmm. the for-profit sector failure is just part of research and development, yeah. right? And over here, no, if you fail once, then well, you're not going to get funding review. And these things are really damaging to our work in the long run. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge those fears and then the other thing that I would, I would say is once we acknowledge those fears, we need to examine whether they are realistic or not. Mm-hmm. So for example, I, I, I understand the power dynamics between foundations and nonprofits. I experience them. I feel them myself. But the reality is most program officers are pretty open to, to getting feedback. They, they crave it. They crave honest, authentic feedback, solution-based feedback but we are too terrified sometimes to give it to them. And, but what happens if we do is they tend to be appreciative. And yes, there might be a couple of funders who are like, okay, I'm just not going to fund you anymore because you, you offended me with your, <laughs> your feedback. But is that the type of funder we really want to be partners with? Right. And I, I would say that most foundations are actually really good, can be good at taking feedback if we actually give them a chance. Mm-hmm. we are persistent and in, in doing that so it's the same i think we need to stop kind of working within the systems that we are given and that that is our default way of doing things just like let's just work with, within these laws and these processes and these philosophies mm-hmm. and you need to move towards move, move towards well how do we actually change these systems and rules 
that govern our work so that we can be more effective in our work. Yeah. I love what you said about not being allowed to fail. I feel like there's huge risk intolerance in our sector. Um, and part of it is just inertia, right? We do things the way they've been done and, and new things are scary and hard and most people are overworked and underpaid. And so it doesn't feel like there's reward for that risk, for taking those risks or for I, whatever you, if you want to call it failing up or what have you. But um, it's a, it is endemic to our sector. And in a way, we just had a conversation with uh, the CEO of Canada Helps here in, in Canada, who was talking about the same thing in our boards, our corporate not always, but a lot of um, people from the corporate sector who, again, have no problem with that risk in business. Why is it such a double standard? Why do we not allow organizations to learn through failure? I think it's because we have a bunch of philosophies that are, are, that are governing our work and the philosophies themselves are just, well, they're wrong. <laughs> For, for example, we have this belief that it's, you know, these foundations, it's, it's other people's money. We've got to be extremely careful with them. Yes, we do. We should be accountable. We should, we should be careful and ethical in our work. But this, this, this belief that this is other people's money is something that I, I think we all need to challenge. When a lot of wealthy individuals are using foundations as a way to, I guess, you know, in, in a way they do benefit because they are, they don't have to pay as much taxes, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Poor people are paying more taxes, whereas extremely wealthy individuals can put it into a foundation, a family foundation, for mm-hmm. example, and then get to determine what to do with it. So if we actually change that philosophy around, we'd be like, actually, that's not your money. You, you put it into a foundation when it should have been going to taxes. Mm-hmm. So therefore, this is actually not your money. And it, it's public money, and you need to be accountable with it, just as we are trying to be as accountable with it. So these undergirding philosophies are things that we really need to examine. Otherwise, we just we keep talking about things and not and not actually changing anything. I think that's where a lot of the resistance is coming from. This 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 belief, and and also because our sector is full of very nice, um, very nice and compassionate individual. <laughs> and so we, we don't tend to be as assertive as we should be. Also, the fact that because we're very compassionate, we care deeply about what happens when you know, we take a risk and it fails and it affects the people that we serve, mm-hmm. right? Whereas when you're, you're working in a for-profit, you fail. Yeah, your business might fail. Might lose poor, poor shareholders, yeah. Yeah, for, yeah, your poor shareholders. Over here, people could die. Yeah. Getting food or shelter. Yeah, the stakes yeah. are so high. And it's such a big undertaking um, to start to right this ship, right? Um, and we talked a little bit about having those difficult conversations, which are really scary. I certainly don't want to undermine it, but what I'm hearing you say is like, just try, just take a step forward. Uh, we can't be frozen in that fear. We have to at least um, start to take some action. Stop the podcast just for a second. I just wanted to take a second to remind our listeners uh, you may not know that this uh, podcast is brought to you by the Good Partnership and Charity Village. 
So a lot of people don't know that both of our organizations are deeply committed to making sure that there are tons of great resources available to small nonprofits in our sector. And so I want you to take a minute to go and access some of those great free resources. For The Good Partnership, you can visit thegoodpartnership.com and specifically on our homepage or visit thegoodpartnership.com slash guide, you can download a free resource that outlines all different kinds of fundraising strategies you might want to consider for your organization. And for charityvillage.com, there's so many webinars and of course the podcast, um, articles, the list is endless. And of course you can post jobs there, volunteer positions, uh, posting is free. So make sure that you are checking out both websites to deepen your learning and continue to access great free stuff. Great tips, Cindy. Now on with the podcast. Um, posting job salary ranges in job postings. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that specific action that people can take and the impact of doing that? And then maybe how that affects some of the broader trends? That's a big question. Let's start with, tell us a little bit about that and what, uh, what can people do and why is that important? Yeah, our center has been talking a lot about equity, right? I always, I always joke that equity is like coconut water. Everyone is drinking it after hot yoga. And it's, uh, but like coconut water, we, we don't want it to be a fad. What, what does this actually, actually look like in real life? And one example of something you can do immediately that would help to advance equity is simply to put the salary ranges in job postings. And, and this is, this is simple and it's, but I wrote about this and I thought, nah, I'm just going to write about this because it's really irritating when people <laughs> just look and they, and they don't see the salary ranges and, and it just, people just really responded to that. Mm-hmm. I got so, and this is probably the, the, the blog post with the longest legs mm-hmm. uh, among the, the 300 that I've written is this is something that this, this little simple act is something that has tremendous impact on, on the sector. You know, it is not just about not annoying people. It, there's an equity lens to it. Women and people of color in general are punished when they are negotiating aggressively Right, and if they don't know what the salary ranges are, then they can, and they then they have no idea how to base the negotiations. Mm-hmm. And so it could be overshot or undershot. If it's overshot, then they're seen as too assertive, and then they don't get a job. If it's undershot, then they're just going to get paid. They're going to get it's, it's accepted to get paid. And our white male colleagues are able to go and you know, be very aggressive. They're like, oh, well, you're seen unconsciously as a great leader. If you're a white male who is assertive. And, and so because of that, this is why there's a huge, this is one reason I think one, that there is gender equity, inequity mm-hmm. in our sector. So it's, just, it's a matter of respect for the candidate, which is something I think that we all need to acknowledge is that job candidates are treated like crap oftentimes. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we don't respond to them. We don't even acknowledge them. Sometimes we hire someone and they never even tell all the candidates who applied. There's so many horror stories, and I, I think it's extremely disrespectful to people who are in our sector who are applying to try to work with our organization to make the world better. It is incredibly disrespectful to them. 
and salary range, not listing it, is also a sign of disrespect because you don't care about their time. You just want the best advantage for your own organization. And then there is the equity lens on top of, of all of it. So I think this needs to be just a standard practice for the entire world. Yeah, absolutely. And not just in our sector, but um, I guess the, the irony is that for the most part, our sector is working to build a more just society and we perpetuate some of these problems, whether it's through the fu- those funder relationships or, you know, how we hire. Um, I'm curious to hear what are the other, you said this was the post with the longest legs. What's the next most uh, significant post that you've had that, that has really tapped into, I think some deep hurt in our sector or a strong need for, for change? Yeah, one of the posts I wrote that, uh, that I think resonated with people was called We Need to Stop Treating Nonprofits the Way that Society Treats Poor People, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, I think, kind of shocking to a lot of people. But there is a strong correlation between how nonprofits are treated. Basically, the war on, I know we all say this all the time, which is like the war on poverty has become war on the poor, right? Mm-hmm. And so then poor people are, are treated horribly instead of, you know, let's, let's address poverty, let's fight poverty. No, let's, let's go ahead and, 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 and villainize poor people instead. And now this extends over to people who help poor people. So it's like, oh, well, you know, you're helping poor people, then you're just like that. And I think this is a, a huge problem. And so, if we treat poor people, we don't treat them with trust. We don't treat them with respect. Mm-hmm. And it is a huge problem. And, and now it's, it's extended to, to nonprofits. So, for example, we, we restrict nonprofits funding. This is the same as giving um, people in poverty food stamps, but it's telling them that they can't buy, they can't spend it on diapers. They can't spend it on this. Mm-hmm. You know, you only buy this, these things and certain amounts of it. You can't buy anything else because we don't trust that you actually spend this money, our money, uh, wisely. Same with nonprofits, right? There's also this like this belief that we need that poor people need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps or whatever mm-hmm. and, and lift themselves out of poverty. It's the same in nonprofit. We expect nonprofits to be self-sustaining. And so it manifests in this question of like how are you going to sustain this program when our money, our hard-earned money that we give you runs out? How do you will you sustain this? Because you can't just be a freeloader forever. When who's freeloading? Right. We are addressing the gaps that that society won't address, that government and the market will not address, or does not do a good job. We are doing the work that no one else wants to do or can do. We are doing society some, a major service, and yet we are seen as like freeloaders begging for money, and and we should be independent. Yeah, no, it, ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous because. Everyone I meet in this sector, they're here because they want to change the world. That is the hardest work anyone can do anywhere, right? Like there's nothing harder. And uh, we we do devalue it so significantly. Um, Yeah. And it it really is – it's doing ourselves a disservice when we're not able to – have those conversations or, you know, 
really change the dynamic both within with our funders and and as we talked about within our organizations i think it's um <laughs> i want to say stockholm syndrome but you know when when we're treated that way by our funders so much and it just becomes this um myth that we perpetuate ourselves right yeah and and then we start to treat our colleagues that way and i've worked in organizations where we have a really strong social justice mission and you know people within the organization just don't treat each other well and they don't live day to day the values that we share as an organization um and it's very it's very difficult to to step out of that um that cycle yeah, I completely agree. I wrote another blog post called, hey, I don't know, what was it? Social justice, folks, can we stop using the tools that we learned <laughs> to, to diminish one another or to yeah. tear one another down? Yeah. And uh, because I, I, think, I think we do we do, do that. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we, we absorb a lot of the, the trauma that we're trying to address. And sometimes we un- we unconsciously perpetuate it onto one another. Yeah. And this is something we really need to be cognizant of. And then we have, and then we perpetuate these practices, such as not listing salary ranges, or not paying our staff living wages, or not providing paid family leave, or you know, are being very not thoughtful when we hire people. Mm-hmm. And so we 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 don't we put in stuff that would that would prevent people with disabilities from applying or it would prevent people who don't have a formal education degree from applying when we are trying to address um, disabilities uh, challenges for, for people with disabilities or we're trying to address education and equity. And we still use many of these things as like hoops for people to jump through. Okay. You know, must be able to have a, a working vehicle and a driver's license. But what if someone has a disability that does not allow them to drive? Yeah. Right? What if they use a wheelchair and they don't drive and they take public transportation? Yeah. Why do we require them to have a car if they can still do their job without driving? Yeah. Right? Or why do we require a public, uh, like a formal education for a job? That, I, I've been in ED for a long time. I don't think you need a formal degree to be an executive director. Yeah. Exactly. There's a lot of really well educated people who don't have the practical skill sets to do the work that we do. And we just posted for a client a grant writing position and I took out from their old posting the educational requirements because I don't care what degree you have. Right. It has no bearing on your ability to write a good grant and to manage grantor relationships. Um, but we're, again, we're so used. I, I, is this inertia and risk adversity that I think makes it so difficult for people to try to do it differently? Um, I think you hit on this formula, Cindy, which is inertia plus risk <laughs> aversion equals status quo. Like yeah. that's, that's basically it. And we need to do a better job just analyzing things. And I know we criticize the sector. I I do it all the time. But I do really appreciate the people in the sector. We do have some of the most... Well, what do they say? We criticize because we care, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, then I care a lot. About yeah, it. no, but but that's true. I I I one hundred percent believe that you do care a lot. I care a lot because, again, we're not here because of the pay. We're here because we want to make the world a better place. Whether that's through arts and culture, social justice, uh, animal protection. I, environmental like we're here because we care and we love this work and that's so true of everyone else who's in the sector or giving to the sector and i think that we lose sight of that a lot yeah yeah absolutely there's a lot of things that we we need to challenge we're going to be more yes about and i think just being cognizant of that i i i always um remember a colleague who said that her city always publishes a, a, a list every year of the, the 10 organizations with the highest overhead rate. Oh. <laughs> and, so, and they publish it in the local newspaper. And she goes, oh, I'm so terrified that my organization will get on the, that, that list. And I'm, I'm thinking, why, why, why don't you write a blog post or a, an op-ed saying this, is, this list is terrible and it's, yeah. it's doing our work. Why do we Try to navigate a system instead of changing it. Yeah. Like, overhead is not a thing. We need to get over this, this concept of overhead. Most sport is that they do, and we go over 10 or 15 percent, we start freaking out. <laughs> and it's not helping us at all. I, I always joke that, you know, it's, it's like overhead is kind of like we, we are firefighters fighting the fires of injustice. And every three or four steps, someone stops us and says, hey, I want to make sure that the money I'm giving you to fight these fires is, is being used to pay for the water and not the hose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah. And we're like, no, 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 don't worry. we got someone else to pay for the hose. You're only paying for the water. Now, if we do this every three or four steps, what, what is happening? The fire is just spreading because we're not tackling it. Yeah. And so the stuff like overhead, is it's not just annoying, it's spreading the fires of injustice and preventing us from hiring the people that we need, preventing us from paying them well, preventing us from challenging these conventions that are not working. Yeah. And we need to just get over a few things. One of them is overhead. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I feel like we could go on forever. Uh, but that's a really important note I think that we can we can sort of wrap up on which is um yeah like we by not I I I always ask what's at risk if we don't change right what's gonna happen if we stay the same and going back to that equation of fear uh sorry inertia and um risk aversion I would say like multiplied by fear um, but this gave a really great analogy of what is at stake, right? These fires are not going to put themselves out. They're going to grow. Uh, and that makes yeah. our work even harder. So there's a lot of urgency in being able to have these conversations, take action, um, and, and to start, right? To, to take a step. We don't have to have it all figured out. Although I feel like if, if people read your blog, they, have most of it figured out. Um, but just to, to not be frozen and to start to do something. So, uh, I will, I, if you could share with us, um, 
and our listeners where they can learn more about you and the resources that you have, because I will say people should absolutely um, subscribe to your blog, but also leverage it, right? If you have to have a hard conversation and uh, there's a post on it, you can use that to actually spark some of those conversations or approach it in a way that is not um, not as personal. So it's a really great resource for, for starting those conversations. Where can people learn more? Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, nonprofitaf.com. Uh, please go check it out. And we also have several Facebooks that, that kind of stems from Nonprofit AF. And uh, so it's uh, Nonprofit Happy Hour. Uh, Facebook group is also a really great resource. You can go on there, ask questions. It's a really great community of about 40,000 people across the U.S. and Canada and I think parts of New Zealand and the U.K. And uh, all, or if you're an executive director or a CEO, there's also ED Happy Hour, which is really for executive director, CEO types. Um, so please check that out. Also, my organization is called Rainier Valley Corps. We do a lot of capacity building and leadership development for communities of color and organizations led by communities of color. So there's a, a lot of interesting lessons we've been uh, collecting. So I hope people will, will check that out too. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for your time and for all the work you're doing to call our sector out on the things that we need to, to fix. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.